You can practice and practice and practice and still not get the outcome that you want. Has that ever happened to anybody? You gave something just a huge effort, but it didn't really go the way you expected. So like three honest people in here, four, thank you. I see the hand, right? It happens. We can give something such effort. We can give something just all that we have and not get the result that we want. The future is just unpredictable. Things that are happening to us, they don't always make sense. They don't always fit our plans. We have to make decisions about what we're doing with zero certainty that they will work out the way that we expect. We make a decision and we're we're not sure what's going to happen. We have no guarantee that it will go the way that we want. But is that what's supposed to drive us? Is that what's supposed to motivate us as we make decisions? Is it our way, our desires? Is it our plans that matter most? Is that what life is all about? As we're studying the book of Esther, there are a lot of truths about God that are helping us navigate their world. We're bringing in these truths from Scripture, and it's helping us understand what's going on with with them. We see a lot of similarities between this world for Esther and our own world. Her day, her, her, her life was uncertain. It was full of the unknown. We, we can't see what God's doing, what God is up to. I've said this, but it's a good reminder. Esther is that way on purpose. It's on purpose that we can't see behind the scenes, that we can't see what God's doing. The inability to see and know what God is doing in Esther, it helps us to navigate our life too. Again, Esther forces us to bring these truths that we know about God into their world. And when we do, we we just see so much better and we understand so much more about what's really happening. And you know what? Our life is exactly the same. When we can't figure it out, we have no guarantee. When we look and we're thinking, "What God, what are you doing? What are you up to? And we're not sure. We need to bring the truth that we know about God into every, into each situation. And when we do, we just will see things so much clearer, so much better. I've already learned from this book that God has good intentions for us. We know that that's true. No matter how things appear, we can be confident that it is for our good. And even though Romans 8, 28, that's where that truth comes from, even though we know that's true, you guys, it doesn't mean that we get precisely what we want. No one would want pain. No one would ask for trouble. No one desires difficulty. But yet that's something that from time to time God determines is exactly what we need. It's for our good. As we come to chapter 5, this truth is going to be on display again, but a little different. And 
it's not only God's ability to work things for our good that we need to dwell on. We need to know that it isn't our plans, our desires, our you know, schemes for life that are the most important. It's God's plan. It's his purpose in our life. It's his desires for us that matter most. And we should want to be right in the middle of his plans for us. A verse that I've been thinking about with chapter 5 comes from Jeremiah. It's Jeremiah 29, 11, and you should write that down. Jeremiah 29, 11, that verse says this, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, plans to give you a future and a hope. Now listen, that, that verse had a very specific application. God was there directly speaking to his people when when they were in captivity. And so we can't just pull every verse out of its context and apply it. But, But there is so much truth to that verse. There's so much about that verse that is still absolutely true of God. Does God not have a plan for us? He absolutely does. We know that he does. We know that his plan for us, it's a promise that begins in the gospel. And that's a promise that is not for evil, but for good. And that's a promise that gives us a future. And that's a plan for us that gives us so much hope. So although we can't just claim Jeremiah 29, 11, anytime we want, we still know that there is a a ton of truth in that verse for us. God has a good plan, and that plan is full of a future and life and hope. I wonder if you ever think about that, what God's plan for my life actually is. How God's plan might be a little different than what I'm thinking about, what I'm expecting, what I would choose, what, what I would, you know, purposely ask for. We need to see this morning how God's plan for us is so much Better. We can be confident that God is accomplishing his plans for us, for, for believers, for those who love him and find salvation in him. It's a good, a great plan that makes things right instead of making them worse. It includes a future and a hope. While those who oppose God find something very different. Those who reject him and refuse his gospel of forgiveness who only care about their own plan, they will find judgment and wrath. They will experience God's plan that's void of any life and any hope. We we want to make sure that that we understand what God's plan is for us. So our big idea this morning, and I hope this is helpful, God has a great plan for your life, and it's his plan that should concern you most. God has a great plan for me, and I need to be most concerned with his plan, not my own. Okay? If you're new to junior high, I'm going to give you a big idea every Sunday morning to try to help you think about what our text is about. And I hope that's helpful for you as you learn to to take notes and, and listen. And that's what we're going to see this morning. When we concern ourselves with God's plan for our life instead of our own, we can act confidently despite the risks. And when we oppose God, we're only going to be allowed to go so far, as we'll see with Haman here this morning, 
only as far as we serve God's purposes. Let's read our text this morning, and we're going to back up just a little bit. I want to start in verse 16 of chapter 4 to kind of get us back into the story. Here's what God's word says. This is uh, Esther speaking. She says, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, and I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it's against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes. She stood in the inner court of the king's palace, in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the royal room, opposite the entrance to the palace. When the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. Esther said, if it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. The king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, King said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. What's your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Esther answered, My wish and my request is if I found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleased the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, well, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them. And tomorrow I'll do as the king has said. Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. He sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches and the number of his sons and all the promotions with which the king had honored him and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I'm invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. And his wife Zeresh, all his friends, said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. And this idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Cool story, huh? This, this contrast of Haman and Esther, it's, it's right in front of us here in chapter 5. We have Esther 
living wisely. She's acting confidently. She's relinquished to do what she must. She's resolved to act despite the risk. And then we have Haman living foolishly. So many proverbs that we could lean on for these two. I think I have one that describes them both. Every prudent person or man or man and women, they act with knowledge, but a fool flaunts his folly. It's Proverbs thirteen sixteen. A fool flaunts his folly. That's Haman. He's only concerned with himself. There he is, flaunting and showcasing his foolishness as it's just his plan, his life, his way that he cares about. It's the only thing that really matters to him. This contrast here to show us and remind us the benefit of living for God's plan for our life rather than our own. And I want to look at this chapter by plans. I didn't even put it on the overhead because it's so simple. We're going to look at Esther's plan, and then we're going to look at Haman's plan. Okay, that's the outline. If you want to write that down, Esther's plan is number one, the first eight verses. And there are two scenes to this part of the story. The first one happens in this inner court of the palace. The second one is this party that Esther's throw, that she throws. And, and verse five shows us that these two scenes kind of happen together. King Ahasuerus offers Esther precisely what she wants in both scenes. Twice he says it, yet Esther keeps her desire hidden both times. She takes neither opportunity to ask for what she's there for. And before we ask why, let's just start at verse 1. Verse 1, it reminds us that the three days of fasting have passed. It's been three long days while her and her girls and Mordecai and all the Jews he could find have been fasting, and I, I believe praying also. And Esther now must prepare herself to stand before the king. She must do so not knowing what will happen. And the text tells us that Esther did her part. She gave herself every chance to be accepted by the king. She put on royalty. Her royal dress would have been a part of that. But I think there's something else here. She knew what would be appropriate for this royal king. She knew that the king was attracted to that which was good looking. We know that from chapter one. Ahasuerus is all about that royal appearance. He cared about that more than anything. He would do anything to save face. And we've already seen him act so foolishly. Royal appears three times in verse one. I think the author's trying to help us see Esther knew she should bring her best, her most royal appearance. And as we think about her all dressed up, we kind of forget that she's actually really sad. We forget that she is also in mourning for her people, for herself and, and her people. And that, that sadness, it, it has to be disguised sackcloth and ashes, we learned last week, is not allowed in the king's presence. Even though that's where she's at in her heart, she must disguise that sadness. She must hide it in this royal appearance. And that's what she does. She doesn't have permission to go to the king. So she can only 
stand in front of that throne room, that royal room, hopeful to receive that golden scepter. And I can only imagine the tension that Esther is feeling. Wondering what the king's reaction is going to be when he finally looks up and sees her. What will he do? Would he be displeased? Would he be annoyed? Would he feel interrupted? He hadn't had any desire, don't forget, to see her in the last month. What would be different about today? High probability that he would simply wave her away. And in case you forgot, that meant also that she would lose her head. But that's not what happens. The text makes clear right away. Immediately, she's successful. She's extended that scepter. As soon as the king saw her, she won favor in his sight, it says. Only a kind of a short breath do we have to wait until we know that the risk for Esther is over. But before that breath ends, we know that she actually still isn't safe. Haman's wicked scheme is still in place. So she's really not out of danger yet. Even though the author is kind to only make us wait like a fraction of a second while Esther hangs between life and death, he doesn't waste much time to remind us that this is out of Esther's control. She finds favor with the king. This has nothing to do with her. It's so out of her control. That phrase Finding favor. We've seen it before, and it reminds us of that first time she stood before the king. Esther was finding favor with everyone, and I think we're meant to ask, like we did the first time, is this God? Is this God again? And I believe the answer is yes. Who else can turn the heart of the king like a channel of water? Proverbs 21 1. Only God has that kind of power to have that king notice her and have Esther find favor with him. That first meeting that Esther had with the king, she had no choice. Don't forget, she wasn't there by her choosing, forced to be there along with all the other pretty girls in the kingdom. But Esther found favor. She found it then and she finds it now. Only this time she wants to be there. This time risking her own life to be there, sticking her neck out, not for herself, but for the cause of her people. In verse three, look at it. It shows us the favor that she won. This phrase is sort of a common kind of kingly statement. I'll give you half of my kingdom. It's not really meant to be taken seriously. Kings aren't in the practice of giving out half their kingdom all the time. It's like, I don't know if you've ever said to a friend, like, I'll do whatever you want. You don't really mean I'll do whatever you want, but you're just trying to say, like, I'm here to help. What can I do? I want to know what's going on. And that's what's happening with the king. He's saying this. What's your request? What's up? Twice he asks her because he obviously knows that she wants something. She wouldn't just come into his presence like that for no reason. He hasn't forgotten. For her to do that, it must be serious. She risks her life to come talk to me. What is it, Esther? What can I do for you? And what we expect Esther to say at the very beginning, what we know she's there to ask for, for whatever reason she doesn't. 
as the reader, immediately we're like, no way. She's given exactly what she wants. Just ask. Just tell him. Just say it. But she doesn't. This open invitation to stop, you know, Haman's crazy death scheme. Instead, a party. <laughs> Let's celebrate. Because we don't know for sure, since the, the text refuses to tell us her motive, we can only presume that somehow this is wise. This is wisdom. I, I can think of the wrath she would face if the king rejected her request. Haman is right there. None more powerful than him in the kingdom besides the king. She's risking a lot. So Esther wisely waits. Wisdom's not only knowing how to present yourself, but it's also knowing when and how to speak. Esther knows a party should come first. She knows that the favor she had once found with the king, she knows it's cooled off a little bit. She knows it can happen again. And she needs to be careful. She can't just jump to this request. She must wait. So instead of asking for a reversal, she hands out party invitations. Esther's smart. There's something in the language that it's hard for us to see, but it's there. She's making much of the king. Even though Haman is invited, the language helps us to know it's the king who is her focus. It's the king that she's most intending to bless here. He's the central figure for her. She has the king in her sights alone. And Esther has this well thought out strategy and it clearly works because verse five, Haman is immediately commanded to hustle to this feast. So we tie some things together from chapter one where, where Vashti was, that was his first queen, where she was rejected for refusing to come to that party the king was throwing. Now the king values Esther more when she invites him to her party. I think Esther knows this king so well. I think she knows exactly what he cares about. I think she knows precisely how to turn him, how to, how to get him to be most agreeable. She knows he loves parties. And so King Ahasuerus asks again, what is it, verse six? What can I do for you? I'll do anything. Up to half my kingdom, that's just the same thing. Uh, just what do you want? What is it? You're not doing all this for nothing. What is it? He wants to know her wish, her request. And Esther hasn't rushed. This is post-meal. She's taken her time. She's been pampering him. She knows him so well. And in verse 7, it's, it's better translated like her repeating the king's question back to him. Like her saying, like, my wish and my request? Well, it's, it's this. Again, Esther doesn't take the opportunity that as the reader, we're like, say it. <laughs> Ask him already. What are you waiting for? Instead, more party invitations. And it it seems crazy to us, but her answer is, it's meant to imply to us that I think a second party was always a part of her plan. She always was, was going to aim at this. And she says, King, if you'll come to this second party, this second banquet, if you'll do that, and if you do come, 
know that then you'll have to say yes to whatever I ask, but it's there that I'll reveal my wish, my request. I'll, I'll let you know, but you need to come back tomorrow. And she acknowledges the king's authority. And she makes so much of, of the king. She's not forcing her hand, but she's patiently waiting for the perfect moment. It's cultural. I've read a lot about this. It wasn't appropriate. It was very rude to ask for a big request right away. And, and Esther, it just shows she knows how to do things right. And she's willing to do them. Even though the delay in Esther, like it makes for good storytelling. Like it's exciting. It kind of keeps us in limbo here. But I think Esther was acting wisely. I think Esther is doing all that she could. That's the point the author's trying to stress. She put herself in harm's way. She risked her life for something way bigger than just her. And even though the text doesn't tell us, even though we know that that Esther is silent about this, but we do know that Esther is in line with God's will for her and for his people. God was going to save them because God had promised that a long time ago. He was going to rescue them. Esther just doesn't know if God's plan includes using her to do it. But we do know she isn't all wrapped up in her life alone. That's what we are supposed to see. She wasn't busy trying to get more followers on Instagram because she's queen. She's not the most concerned about her life in the palace, her comforts, her pleasure. That isn't what consumes her. No, she risked everything, her her life. She did it confidently, knowing that God's plan for her life would be better than any plan she could possibly come up with. God had plans for her a future and a future full of hope because it's his plan, not hers, that she cared most about. That's Esther's plan. Let's look at Haman's plan. Number two, second plan of this chapter. Haman's plan. I know, complicated outline. Verses nine to 14. Haman presented like a fool. Haman is clueless to the queen's motive here. He's simply caught up in the moment. He's so happy that he was invited to sit with the cool kids. He couldn't believe it. You want me to go to the party? Like he is so just overjoyed. He's full of food and wine for sure, but likely he's more full of himself than anything else. Verse nine, how quickly his good mood just vanishes. And he walks by Mordecai on his way out. And Mordecai does what he's been doing, refusing to stand and pay homage and honor, just sitting there looking at him. And Mordecai immediately remembers his hatred for this man. And it undoes his mood. And he once again just rages and he Mordecai sort of continues to deny Haman that respect and that honor. We can't forget Haman, this Agagite. It's a funny name, but that's who he is. He's an enemy of the Jews. That's part of their history. So just as Esther's wisdom is revealed throughout her plan, showing how she's living for God's plan, not her own, Haman shows us he only cares about himself. These two plans presented here. 
Verse 10 tells us that Haman rounds up his buddies and he gets his wife for another party. A lot of parties in the Persian Empire, right? It's, it's at this party, though, where Haman sets himself up to be like the guest of honor. His friends are forced to listen to his speech. He presents this grand resume of his life. Listen to how lucky you guys are to have me here, blah, blah, blah. He boasts of his promotions, of his fat wallet, of how many sons he has. All of it just pointing to his power. Look at me, look at me, look at me. I think they were already aware. In verse 12, he even boasts of being the only invite to the queen's private party. I think trying to say he even has the queen and king in the palm of his hand. But verse 13, he has it all, all but one thing. Mordecai will not bow to me and it's driving me crazy. And I know he's going to die in a few months. I know there's nothing to stop that. But Haman can't wait Quickly, he shows that all he has is worth nothing because of Mordecai's disrespect. And his wife and his friends, they offer the kind of advice one would expect in this empire. It seems the advice given in Persia, it's always extreme. It's always dangerous. And we're not disappointed by the advice they give. This gallows, 75, let me do the math for you, 75 feet high. I think that's about two tower buildings. Really high. Really up there. Wife is saying, make an example of this guy, this enemy of yours. Make sure everyone sees it. Go big or go home. This will do the trick, honey. This will help you get over this disrespectful man. Put him up high. Put his dead body up high. Haman's authority should be used to destroy this Nobody, this enemy who, who disrespects him. In Esther's day, by the way, it wasn't to hang him. It was to showcase what happens when you mess with the wrong people. It was to showcase his dead body. This is what we do with people who, who refute us. That's what the whole point was. Make it, make it as visible as possible. It's, it's, it's an incredible story. What a story. Esther, especially here in chapter 5, it's a book of irony. I don't know if you'll remember this or not, but back in chapter 1, these two guys, the king and Haman, they were so worried about their wives and the wives in the kingdom not submissively following their husbands. They were so concerned about that. And here, both of them, the king and Haman, are doing precisely what their wives suggest. So funny. And for the reader, it seems like we have like, a, like another runaway train here, this, this force that's been set into motion again by Haman. Even if Esther's successful, she's likely going to lose Mordecai. And her victory is going to seem more like a failure. But both Esther and Haman, they go to sleep believing their plans will succeed. Both, I believe, I think they're, they, they believe they're getting what they want. Both of them do. But both of them are under the hand of God who's, 
whose plan is undeniably at work. For Esther, it's a plan for a future and hope. And for Haman, it's a plan that will, will lead to his end. It's interesting to note that his friends and his wife's bad advice will send Haman to the king early the next morning. That's going to come into play next week. And deeper irony still is that Haman will lose each of the things he boasts about, each of the things that he values most, he's about to lose. It's all going to be taken from him. Haman is the fool. The very thing he believes will satisfy him is the very thing that will end his own life. Small spoiler alert. Haman is the fool. Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction. And a prideful spirit before a fall. He's the one who only concerns himself with his own plan, with his own stuff. But Haman's delight at this advice and his approval to put this plan into place, it silently puts into motion the opposite of what Haman hopes for. This is all precisely what God has planned for him. Haman is actually being allowed to accomplish not his own purposes, but God's. And these two plans, they, they remind us that our plans really aren't what matter most. They remind us this plan of Esther and Haman. They, they, they point to God's plan for our life. The blessing of desiring God's plan most. The danger of rejecting God's plan. Young people, you may think your life is going perfectly, that it's going precisely according to your plan. You don't need this God stuff. You don't need this, you know, gospel. Why would you surrender your life to God when everything is going so, so well? You may think you're getting away with everything, that your plan is unfolding flawlessly. I, I bet that's how Haman felt at the end of chapter five. Guarantee that's what he was thinking. God's plan will be accomplished. Only God's plan is truly an unstoppable force. And he has a plan for you, for those who will humbly call out to him in faith, who will call out to him for salvation, God has a beautiful plan, a plan that promises life, that's full of, of hope and joy. But those who remain consumed with themselves, only living for you like Haman, we learn God's plan for you ends in self-destruction. Ends with you hanging on your own gallows. Romans chapter 1 talks about people that have every reason to know God exists. Paul writes about even the creation is enough to convince us of God's authority and power. And yet when we reject him, when we say, God, I don't want anything to do with you, Paul talks about this foolish exchange that we make. Instead of worshiping God, we worship us. We make this dumb exchange and we become a fool. And the end result of that is that God gives us up. Psalm 14.1, a great verse to write down, says this. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. 
My prayer is that we learn from Esther how much better God's plan for our life is than our own. How much more you should just want to be right in the middle of God's plan for you. And as you've heard me say this before, I'll say it one more time. God's plan for you begins with the gospel. It begins with salvation. And it's a beautiful plan. Heavenly Father, thank you for the story of Esther. How it reminds us God, of so many truths about you and your character and your love for us. Father, I pray for these young students. God, help them to understand how foolish, how dangerous to say there is no God. I don't want God's plan. Father, help them to pray to you even right now, this this morning, today, to pray for salvation, for forgiveness for a desire to embrace the great plan that you have for their life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.